When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So why are some people more successful than others? This is a tough question to answer because it's a mixture of a whole bunch of factors, many of which are out of our control, things like just dumb luck or even our genetics. But there are a few factors that we have a say over, and one of them is the ability to persevere even in the face of setbacks. In other words, it's grit. And my guest today has spent her career researching what makes people gritty and how we can develop this trait in ourselves. Her name is Angela Duckworth. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And today on the show, Angela and I discuss her research on grit and insights on how we can develop this important trait ourselves based on her visits and interactions with poor inner city students, West Point cadets, and Seattle Seahawks football players. It's a really great show. A lot of actionable steps you can start applying today to become a grittier man. And if you want to check out our show notes after the show for links to resources that we mentioned throughout the show so you can delve deeper into this topic, visit aom.is slash grit. Angela Duckworth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I've been a fan of your work for a while now because um, I've read stuff you've been putting out about grit and the grit scale and your TED Talk, of course. And you finally got your book out, uh, Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. Uh, before we talk more about your research into the characteristic of grit, let's define it first. What do you mean by grit or what is grit? I define grit as both perseverance and passion for especially challenging long-term goals. Got you. So it's passion and perseverance. And what got you interested in studying or researching grit? It, it all started actually being a teacher in the classroom, trying to teach kids who were going through puberty, you know, how to solve an algebraic equation. Um, and um, that not only takes grit, but I think the more important thing was that I was struck by how differently some kids turned out at the end of the year, that, you know, some kids got higher grades than I expected them to, frankly, given how hard it was for them to learn the material. And, and other kids that I expected to do, you know, straight A work all year ended up doing far from that. And, and it was largely because they didn't try hard or long enough. I wanted to understand that a little better. I mean, like any well-meaning teacher, I told my kids to work harder and I lectured them about the importance of, you know, their futures. But but as a psychologist, I think it's 
it's been my my mission, my calling to un- understand why some kids, you know, keep trying and why kids don't, to understand, to unpack the psychology of things like grit. And I think it's interesting, in your book, you talk about that you weren't the first psychologist to research what, you know, something, something similar to grit. Uh, you talk about how the U.S. Army decades before were trying to figure out why some soldiers did well at West Point or made it all the way through the initial like few weeks of West Point, while others who were on the paper looked extremely talented, they had a lot of potential, and they just faltered. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the U.S. Army was doing with the sort of grit psychology before you got onto it? Well, what West Point wanted to know was why some of the cadets who had been recruited through this extremely, you know, kind of famously rigorous admissions uh, procedure that requires a congressional nomination and a physical fitness test of, you know, your aptitude in, in various areas, you know, why is it that all of that, you know, recruiting valedictorians and varsity sports team captains, why is it that so many of these young women and men these days, of course, originally it was just men, you know, why do they drop out? You know, why do they drop out even before they've even begun really seriously? For example, the first summer of training at West Point is called Beast Barracks. Even officially, it's called Beast Barracks, or sometimes they just call it Beast for short. And in those first two months, you know, many young men and women who everyone would have thought would have been there at the end, they're not there anymore. So for decades, West Point had been trying to figure this out, you know, doing various kinds of tests. And in the 2004, when I came along with the grit scale, which is just a questionnaire that captures the qualities of passion and perseverance I was talking about, grit scale ended up being astoundingly predictive. The higher your grit score, the more likely you are to make it through beast. And so what you found too was interesting is that, you know, I think before they go in, I mean, people need to understand when people are accepted at West Point, they've gone through this filtering process, this winnowing process. This is the best of the best. It's not just academic. It has to have extracurriculars, fitness. And I guess some the students are given a rating, Right, and they thought that this rating on paper would be the would predict how well people would do at West Point. But when you applied the grit scale or the grit test to these students, you found that some of the students who looked good on this other assessment didn't do well, while others who performed on the like the grit scale is what predicted uh, success, getting past Beast Week. Exactly. So the whole candidate score, which is the official term that West Point uses for this composite of your your SAT score, your high school rank, your leadership potential as evidenced by your extracurricular activities, and finally your physical aptitude measured by objective tests like the two-mile run. You roll all that into the whole candidate score. I'll tell you what it does predict, but it's true that it doesn't predict finishing beast. What it does predict is this. If you stay at West Point, if you do hang around for those four years of training and you graduate, your whole candidate score is a tremendously reliable predictor of how well you'll do. But as Woody Allen, the great philosopher, also you know comedian, said, 80% of success in life is showing up. And talent is no guarantee that you'll be the person who continues to show up. Yeah, and you talk about that in your book that I think everyone – we have this appreciation for grit uh, in our heads. Like we tell our kids, you got to work hard, stick to it, do it if you, even if you don't feel like it because you'll get better at it. But then you argue in our book that when it comes to how we actually behave, like we prefer talent, like we want to go with the natural. 
why is it why is there this dis- disconnect where we tell say one thing but uh, do another? Such a great question. I think there really is a deep ambivalence. You know, I mean, I love naturals too, in a sense. You know, I I love to be dazzled. There's something very romantic about the idea of somebody just having a special it factor. And, you know, we've all experienced this. It maybe it depends on what you like to watch, but, you know, if you watch certain certain athletes um, perform or certain musicians and, and you just, they really do have this otherworldly magical quality or it seems like we like to think about that about them. On the other hand, you know, we really value effort and hard work and, um, you know, being resilient and earning your achievements, you know, being a striver. So I think that ambivalence is what is at the heart of experiments. For example, my colleague and my friend, Chia Jung Sei, she has run experiments where, you know, you get to see two performers. They're actually equal in performance. I mean, she can even play you the same music, for example, and have you judge, you know, how, how, uh, how able they are, how skilled they are, you know, how good of a musician. If she describes that musician to you as somebody who's a natural, who's gifted, then you're more likely to think that person is going to be successful and accomplished later on than if she gives you the same exact music, but she describes that person as a hardworking striver. So she's kind of uncovered a bias, a maybe slightly unconscious bias, that is nevertheless real, that in some ways it's like when you go dating and you're like, oh, really, I want to you know, I want to date the, the nice guy, but you end up picking the cute one. Right, right, right. Um, and yeah, I guess you talk about, you quote Nietzsche. Nietzsche, you know, 100 years ago, over 100 years, had that insight that we prefer natural talent, but like you should ignore that because it's, if you just sort of focus on talent, it, you do so to your detriment. Yeah, and Nietzsche's insight here comes from a debate that he was having with his, um, uh, you know, sometime, you know, thought partner Wagner, right? And they were talking about great accomplishment. And Nietzsche says, you know, speak not to me of genius and speak not to me of inborn talents. And then he describes what he saw as the reality of excellence, which is, you know, a dedication to your craft, a relentless a relentless commitment to self-improvement, you know, never being satisfied with where you are. And uh, he said, you know, the patience to work on all the little small things that, that do end up to being, you know, someone who we can laud now as, as, you know, a great artist, as a great performer. And, you know, Wagner took the opposite view, which is that, you know, you know, some people are born a certain way and some people aren't. But I take the Nietzschean view, and I think Nietzsche was also right when he tried to understand the psychology of it. Like, why do we keep doing this? Like, why do we love to call someone a genius and somebody else not a genius? And he said that, you know, when we don't believe that we are in the same class as someone, when we feel like there are different species in us, then here we do not have to compete. It lets us off the hook. You know, why try to run really hard when you're never going to be Usain Bolt? You know, like it, it's, um, it's a way of just relaxing into this comfortable identity as somebody who um, will never achieve the kind of greatness that we really admire and therefore can accept the status quo. So you argue in the book that there are four factors of developing grit. Uh, can you share what those factors are? Yeah, when I study paragons of grit, you know, people who really exemplify passion and perseverance for something that they, you know, deeply care about, I find that they have four psychological assets, as it were, and I think they're each acquirable, really. The first one is they have deep interests. 
you know, they have figured out how to stay interested in one thing and to make that one thing new again, right? You know, you do anything for a while, the natural thing is to get bored. But what happens with experts is that they find differences to still attend to. They find nuances. You know, my guess is about you is that, you know, in some ways you've been interviewing people about similar topics for a long, long time. And and yet I think there's always a newness, like something yet to be discovered, um, a nuance or a depth that you haven't yet reached. At least that's the way I feel about my work. Second, as a capacity for practice, a capacity to practice your weaknesses, to get feedback from a coach, from a peer, to really reflect on that feedback and make a refinement and to start all over again in that continuous improvement cycle that I mentioned earlier. Third, a sense of purpose. And in here, I really mean other-centered purpose. You know, a sense of what you do is not just for yourself, but for your team, for your company, for your country, for your family, for the sport. You know, I've not interviewed a paragon of grit who doesn't have a sense that, to some extent, they're on a mission, and the mission involves the well-being of other people. And fourth and finally, there's hope. You know, learning to focus on what you can control and what you can change when things are not going well. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we get there, you said that these traits are, are you can develop these psychological traits. But I'm curious, what, what does the research say? There's all this research coming out about genetics and even influencing temperament and things like that. Is there any research about whether grit is inborn or if it's a mixture of uh, social upbringing or your environment? There was actually recently a study of twins in the United Kingdom. I think it was 2,000 pairs of twins. And these studies basically go like this. You know, you have twins um, by, by knowing their relatedness to each other. And, you know, oftentimes, it's, you know, twins raised apart. So they're in different families, twins raised together. You can kind of back into how much is nature and how much is nurture in traits like grit. And in this recent study, there was an estimate for how heritable, how genetic grit is. And the estimates came in as about 20% or so for passion and about 40% or so for perseverance. When I read that study, I actually was a little bit surprised not to find that there was a genetic component to how gritty we might end up being, but actually that the estimates weren't higher than that because in many studies, traits like grit end up being more heritable, you know, 40-50% of the variation attributable to our DNA. So the bottom line, I think, is this. Like any other thing that you might care about, you know, how shy you are, how tall you are, how smart you are, whether you're going to get skin cancer, how how likely you are to be overweight or not overweight, there is definitely a genetic component, but it's not 100%. It's uh, a fraction of that. So for all of the things that I mentioned, including grit, your experiences and your environment really matter. Okay. Um, so work with what you got basically. I think so. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my genes because I can't do anything about them. Right, exactly. Um, So let's go back to this idea of this factor of interest. Um, And it seems that this is where passion is connected. If you're interested in something, you're passionate in it. So how do you, we have a lot of young guys who listen to this podcast. They're in their late teens, early 20s. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And you often hear this refrain that you should follow your passion. But how do you figure out what your passion is or your interest is if you don't have one at the at the moment? I have 
always wondered why commencement speakers keep exhorting everyone to follow their passion when most people in the audience don't don't have one yet just like you said you know i would follow it if if someone could tell me what it was so you know maybe it's a little more helpful to to think about fostering a passion because it really is an active process when people become interested in things it happens you know not necessarily all in a moment in time you know if you if you if you try to date back your interest in something like a particular sport or you know something that'll become your job, your profession. It's it's true that there are, you know, sometimes these memorable experiences, like the first time I got to, you know, work with a great coach or, you know, the first time that, you know, I realized that like writing could be something that I could do for a living. But invariably, there are subsequent experiences. Sometimes interest researchers like to call this triggering and re-triggering, where that interest gets deeper and deeper. And uh, that requires typically, you know, supportive people around you, like, you know, other athletes on your team who make it an overall positive experience. One paragon of grit that I've closely studied is Mark Vetri. He's a world-class chef. He's, you know, my favorite chef in Philadelphia. And, you know, when he remembers his boyhood, it's not that he knew when he was a kid that he was going to grow up to be a chef. He actually thought he'd become a musician. But if you look at his trajectory, he started cooking a little bit with his grandmother. You know, that was a very positive emotional experience. You know, he started hanging around in restaurants. He just, he washed dishes to make money because teenage boys like making money for for uh, for good reason as well. And the people in the kitchen were nice to him. He had a stutter, and he was a little bit of an outcast in high school. And when he went to the kitchen, he, you know, washed dishes, and I gave him food to eat, and it was delicious. People are nice. And he started going to kitchens more and more. So it's it's a messy process. It, it doesn't happen in a moment in time. It often takes years to really grow into an interest. And I think for the young people who are worried that they don't have a passion, it's absolutely normal when you are exploring things to not yet have a passion. But what I would urge them to do is to keep keep trying to, to foster one because uh, if you don't look for it, if you don't try, you're certainly less likely to cultivate one than if you do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. I think your story is also a great example of how you find your interest or your passion. Because, I mean, you started off as a business consultant and then you went to go teach at a you know lower income school. And this is this, then you found out, okay, I want to figure out why some kids stick with it and some kids don't. So you got your PhD in psychology. Uh, so this took several years to finally to the point where you're, you're the grit lady. You know, and I, before I became the Gritley, yes, exactly. And, you know, there was even more skipping around than that because, you know, I was a consultant in my late 20s, but there was some skipping around that, that, you know, I could tell you about. But the point is, is that there was a lot of exploration before I figured out what I really wanted to do. I, You know, it's a little bit like dating, right? I mean, you know, I'm pretty glad, frankly, that I didn't marry the first guy that I went out with. And each time I broke up with someone or, you know, they broke up with me, I think it was because one of us realized that this isn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to do this for life that, you know, for one reason or another, there's somebody else that we could have been with and been happier. It's not that dating is a bad thing, but I think that if you are not at least trying to figure out something that eventually you will stick with, 
right? Um, then again, you know, you're not going to uh, likely find that thing. And I'm so much more gratified by my life now that I have an expertise. I, you know, wake up every day thinking about a fairly small set of scientific questions all related to the psychology of achievement. And I'll never get bored of those questions. And that's something I couldn't say to you when I was 22 or 25 or probably even 31. It was not until my, you know, fourth decade of life that I really started to hone in on what would make me so passionate and persevering um, in the way that I feel like I am today. And so you, so interest, I think a lot of people, it's kind of the fun part. You're exploring, figuring out what you like. Um, but the hard part about grit, and the thing I found hard with it, um, and when I throw out and I look at my life is the practice part. And it's not just, I think a lot of people have a miss, like a, not a good idea of what practice actually is. Um, you focus a lot on deliberate practice. For our listeners who aren't familiar with this concept, what is deliberate practice? Deliberate practice is very methodically and intentionally working on very specific aspects of your overall performance, then trying with complete effort to to remediate those weaknesses, getting feedback, largely on what you're doing wrong, of course, because you're trying to do something you can't yet do, and then reflecting, making a small refinement and repeating the process all over again. It is complete common sense. You know, what else would you do? Of course you would do that. But if you ask the question, how many people are really doing that, you know, really honing in on something that they can't yet do that would make them better, trying with full effort and concentration, seeking out the feedback about what they should do differently, making a refinement and starting all over again. I think I think a lot of people are frankly going through life without doing any of that. And, and they're just sort of doing the same thing that they did yesterday in a pretty unthoughtful um, or in a way mechanistic manner. Deliberate practice, most people experience as highly effortful and not very fun. There are exceptions, and I think those exceptions are interesting, but I think the first lesson is that practice isn't supposed to be like performance, which can be flow-like and delightful. Practice is, for most people, really, really hard. Yeah, and so how do you, how do, in your research and the people you've talked to, what are these individuals who are consistent with their practice? Um, it's very hard. How do they keep themselves motivated to keep practicing the violin? You talk about spelling bee champions and the amount of hours they spend practicing spelling. How do they stay motivated for that? Even when they, and to do it, even when they like, man, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, you know, we should forgive ourselves for having those thoughts. I interviewed Rowdy Gaines, who was the 1984 gold medalist in the 100-meter freestyle, and he also, I think, set the world record uh, in that same event. And, you know, he said that uh, he hated getting up at, what, 4.30 in the morning in the middle of, you know, the darkness of night, getting into a bathing suit, you know, walking to the pool, jumping in, and not taking a leisurely, you know, lap or two. I mean, like pushing his body to its very limits, you know, sometimes pain often tedious. Um, he didn't love practice. And so, you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much about the fact that, you know, we, we can sometimes get that feeling of like, God, this is, you know, what am I even doing here? Because everybody does occasionally, at least, experience that. I think one thing that makes it easier is to make it a habit. You know, something happens when we do something at the same time and at the same place 
in a ritualistic routine way. And one of the things that happens is that, you know, to some extent it becomes a little more automatic. I mean, many people have an exercise routine that look, it's not that it doesn't take any effort, but it makes it a little easier that, oh, it's just what I do. I'm going to get up at six o'clock in the morning and I put on my sneakers and I'm out the door. So routine and habit are, are one recommendation. The other recommendation is to go and hang out with a lot of people who are doing the same thing. So if you're going to try to, you know, do something like begin running uh, as part of your life, can you can you join a, another group of people who are who are all going to be doing the same thing? Because really, he, human beings are by their nature conformist to a large extent. You know, we do what the herd does, and it makes it easier if the herd is, you know, doing something gritty. If of course being gritty is something that we aspire to ourselves. Right, and I guess imagine like having a purpose helps in that too, because you can always connect you know, the tedium to that higher purpose. Exactly. And, you know, you know, it's not always easy to see, but when you ask Rowdy Gaines, well, why did you swim, you know, so hard in practice? You know, he, he laughed a little and he said, you know, I think I actually swam around the globe, you know, the equivalent of it, right? If you add up all the, you know, each in 50 meter increments, right? Um, uh, but he knew even when he was doing it, and it's not just in retrospect, right? Cause he's, course older now he knew even at that moment that he had an overall passion for the sport that you know the the hours of practice put into the pool were, were part of something larger and so i think that perspective of like you know this is not just sitting here try it is it is part of a bigger picture i think that really does help so i'm a parent and i'm sure that a lot of people who are listening are parents and this is like a, a trait i want to instill in my kid like to keep working at it even if they don't succeed the first time um, and persevere are there any tips or in, from your research that what parents can do to help encourage or foster grit in their own children? One of the parents that I interviewed, because he himself is a paragon of grit, but you know, like you, has a has a really deep desire to instill grit in in his kids, is Joe Decina, who founded the Spartan Race. And, um, you know, he told me a story about a day where, where he lives, you know, they live near mountains and um, his son was on the ski team. And one day Joe was surprised because he knew because of the time of day that it was the middle of ski practice. And his son comes in, he's like taking off his gloves and, and Joe says, you know, what's up? Uh, aren't you supposed to be out there? And his son said, it's too cold. Um, and Joe said, you better put your gloves back on because, you know, we're going back up that mountain and we're going to ski down it. And I think they, I think they walked up the mountain actually, um, uh, and, and they skied down it. And I asked him, you know, what was the, what was the lesson you were trying to teach your son? And he said, you know, I think kids are always learning. And uh, it's not just when we think they're learning. And I didn't want my son to learn to quit. So I, you know, took him up there and I showed him that he could do it. Uh, I showed him that it wasn't as bad as he thought, right? That it wasn't impossible to do something like that. Um, and I also made him realize that, like, he should keep going to ski practice because if he comes in before it's over, his dad's going to take him out and make it even harder. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I think the lesson is that that the kids really are learning at, at all the time. And we do have um, an opportunity as parents to show them what they won't come to on their own. You know, I'm a parent of a 13 and 14 year old girl. Both of them are girls. And um, I thought when they were younger, uh, I, I model grit for them. Well, they'll just, you know, do what I do. I don't think that's enough. I think that's helpful. But, you know, to expect kids to, you know, practice their piano when they'd rather go out on a play date or, you know, to always be resilient 
moment when they you know lose a race or you know to know what to do when um, when they screw up and they do badly in a in a class you know they really need parents to to say things to them like you know it's it's natural to want to quit on a hard day but I'm not going to let you right so you got to be intentional about it. I think so. I think so. And it is very hard, isn't it? I mean, it is, you know, you, parenting is <laughs> You don't so want to think about it, right? Because you have other things to think about. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, you know, but yes, I think it being intentional, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I like, the suggestions that you do in your own family is like the hard thing rule. Mm-hmm. Where, I can say more about that. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to hear more about that. You know, as a parent, I and as a psychologist, I was trying to navigate. Um, you know, in, in the sense that I, I I knew that on the one hand, my kids needed me to help discipline them, right? You know, kids are five, six, seven. Again, you know, they 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 invariably need a parent to to tell them occasionally that, like, no, you absolutely have to do your practice before you can, you know, go out and do this other fun thing outside or whatever. Um, so on the other hand, I knew that they needed autonomy because human beings do not pursue things with passion that they have not chosen for themselves to do. So here's how we manage that. In our family, even since our kids were very little, five years old, I think, uh, my husband and I said that in the Duckworth family, everyone has to do a hard thing. That's the first part of the hard thing rule, that you have to have a hard thing. For my daughters, um, you know, piano for one, um, and the other um, was eventually, you know, viola. But the point was, is that by hard, I meant requiring that deliberate practice where you are intentionally trying to remediate some kind of weakness, problem solve, uh, and get feedback and get better and better. Secondly, they have to finish what they begin. And it was very important to my husband and myself that just like Joe DeSino, we we didn't want our kids to to learn to quit in the middle of things. So they were not allowed to quit in track when they weren't doing well and told me they wanted to quit. They they weren't allowed to, you know, quit in the middle of ballet before the tuition payment was was up. They weren't allowed to quit their instrument, you know, because they didn't feel like practicing for recital. You know, they were allowed to quit, but not until they finished the commitment that they had already made. So uh, so that was the second part of the hard thing rule, that they had to finish the, to the natural end point, the natural interval. And then they could pick another hard thing, but this brings me to the third part of the hard thing rule, and it's the last part and just as important as the first two. And that is that nobody gets to pick your hard thing but you. You know, I didn't tell my kids, you know, you have to play viola and you have to play piano. Like, they they chose these things uh, on their own, and I think we don't have to give kids every choice, but we do have to give them some choice because that autonomy is crucial for fostering passion. Yeah, I love that. Love creating that culture of uh, of grit in your family. And speaking of you know culture, like I, I, since your initial research has come out, uh, it seems like there's a lot of business organizations that have been implementing some of these ideas. They're trying to develop a culture of grit in their business or their organization. And you talk about uh, the Seattle Seahawks uh, head coach, Pete Carroll. Um, what is Pete doing with his team to develop this idea of grit there? You know, Pete Carroll was working on grit long before he watched my TED Talk and 
called me up. I don't know whether he used the word grit, but you know, it really captures, I think, for him the quality of competitor that he's looking for. You know, every coach is trying to select for the qualities that they want. You know, that's why they care so much about scouting and uh, recruitment. But every coach is also interested in cultivating those same qualities once those players get there. And and Pete's no exception. So for Pete, I think what he's trying to do is, you know, model a commitment that you know, I would describe as passion and perseverance. Um, He has what I find is true of Paragons of Grit, which is a top-level goal. You know, really, really gritty people are usually able to articulate in a single sentence that ends with a period the top-level goal that motivates everything that they do. For Pete, it's only two words, always compete. You have to unpack that. He he means compete in a very particular. Basically, he means always striving to be your best. Um, he left out the part that you know. Obviously, he's doing that through coaching and football. But nevertheless, it's a it's kind of a a compass for him. You know that everything in his life is in service to that top level goal. And he's trying to get his players to realize that, you know, that is possible for them as well. He he does it in part through modeling, but in part through rituals. So uh, there's a tell your, you know, tell the truth Monday tradition at the Seahawks where, you know, we talked about deliberate practice is working on, you know, your relative weaknesses and getting feedback. Well, the tell your truth Monday tradition is that the guys watch their film and they watch the things that they did right and they watch things that they did wrong and in a in a dispassionate way, you know, analyze it. It's like, okay, I should do this differently. Okay, let me try it again. And I think that kind of ritualizing is is crucial to culture. And the last thing I'll just say is that language is really important. You know, the words that we use, I think, are symbolic of the values that we hold. And, you know, when I was at the Seahawks, it was almost like uh, being in a foreign country. You know, somebody said to me uh, while I was there, I speak fluent carol. And I think what he meant was that these phrases that are very much part of being a Seahawk, you know, finish strong, be early, no whining, no excuses, always compete. I mean, you know, you talk to anybody in the Seahawks organization, they know exactly what you mean. You talk to people outside the organization, and they may or may not know because, of course, outside, you're not a Seahawk. Right. Well, Angela, we we literally scratched the surface uh, about your research and your book. Uh, Where can people go to learn more about your work as well as the book? I guess they can learn about my work primarily through the book, but also at my website, which is AngelaDuckworth.com. All right. Well, Angela Duckworth, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. My guest today was Angela Duckworth. She's the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, and it's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her uh, book at AngelaDuckworth.com. And while you're there, you can even take the Grit Scale test to see how gritty you are. And also uh, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash grit for uh, more information about the topic we discussed today. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes. That really help us out a lot in spreading the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.